Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. As you may have noticed from the opening music, this is going to be a slightly different episode. Unfortunately, Corey got a call about a family emergency that needed his attention. Um, He's going to be okay, uh, but he's not able to record this week. I considered taking the week off, but I did want to put something out for you, and fortunately, Lisa was able to clear up a little bit of time in her schedule, so we recorded a podcast about Prez, the 1973 comic featuring the first teenage president. Because what could be more fun and distracting than thinking about a presidential election? Yeah, I maybe didn't think this one through. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Lucas Bickford, and it is inspired by my discussion of the superhero or supervillain The Wizard and the musical Wicked. I'm not going to sing it because Wicked is one of those musicals, those newfangled musicals that you kind of have to be good at singing to sing, which I disapprove of. I like to Rex Harrison my way through songs. You know who Rex Harrisoned the heck out of his way through a song? Peter Falk in Robin and the Seven Hoods. Pretty good. But I digress ever so slightly. Ahem. Once I'm with the wizard, my whole life will change. Because once you're with the wizard, no one thinks you're strange. No Hubbard always laughs at you. No Cory eats your farts. All of Oz must love you when the wizard's in your heart. And I'll have revenge on all the jerks who have made me pissed. The wizard and I will rule this synopsis. Thanks, Lucas. Prez, number one. September, 1973. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? That's the name of the issue. I wasn't trying to Rex Harrison my way through the national anthem. Written by Joe Simon, drotted by Jerry Grandinetti, inked by Jerry Grandinetti, and that's all I could find for creative credits. Uh, I think the lettering might have been done by Gaspar Saladino, but that's just circumstantial evidence and speculation on my part. Teen President Roll Call! Prez! Previously in stuff that actually happened in the 70s. In 1970, after years of debate, the voting age in the United States was lowered from 21 to 18. In 1971, the 26th Amendment to the Constitution prevented individual states from raising the voting age any higher than 18. And in 1972, for the first time in U.S. history, teenagers voted in a presidential election. Hooray! People speculated about how progressive things were going to get now that the youth movement had some political power. Then Richard Nixon was re-elected in a landslide. Damn it, voters in the historic 1972 presidential election. Anyway, a year later, Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti made this comic about a kooky world in which teenagers voted one of their own into the Oval Office. Gadzooks! What hot-button issue will propel this young firebrand to national prominence? What actions will he take once in office? 
And does this issue feature a character who is a horrifically racist stereotype of a Native American? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Clock repair? He plays chess and fights Dracula? And... Yup! It sure does. The year is 1972, and the otherwise idyllic Midwestern town of Steadfast has a problem. All the clocks are set to different times, so people are always late for stuff. Local teen race car driver Prez Rickard is sick of this shit. Not only can he not get an accurate record of what his winning time was, but he's also concerned that if people can't agree on what time it is, how will they know when it's election day? Uh, Prez? Are the calendars in Steadfast fucked up as well? If so, and you can't find any 1972 calendars, you can use any old 1944 or 1916 calendars you have lying around. The days for those years should match up okay. Problem solved. Prez resolves to go around fixing all the clocks in town so that they're all synchronized. It's a pretty big job, so it takes him about two weeks. Probably. No real way of knowing for sure until they're able to scare up some more 1916 or 1944 calendars, thanks to my handy life hack. Everybody's pretty stoked to know what time it is now. Eh. I mean, sure, they won't miss the first few minutes of Macmillan and Wife anymore, but they also won't have an ironclad excuse for not showing up to work on time. Seems like a mixed bag to me at best. But... Seeing as the thrilling tale of a clock-repairing teen gets a lot of attention in the press, I guess the people of Steadfast are a little hard up for entertainment. So, maybe their obsession with Macmillan and wife is understandable. Meanwhile, in the bustling nearby metropolis of Central City, corruption and graft are running rampant. The local government is under the thumb of a sleazy mayor named Boss Smiley. Young people are tired of Smiley and his unscrupulous policies and strong-arm tactics. They start protesting outside of City Hall, so the mayor and his cronies send out the cops to beat the shit out of them. Smiley's flunkies think their boss will be pretty psyched to watch this violence, on account of he's a mean, vicious jerk. But despite his perpetually grinning face, Smiley is furious. He casually tosses one of his underlings out the window, and explains to the others that he's concerned. Now that teenagers are able to vote, he's worried that they'll vote him out of office, or at the very least elect Congress people that will put an end to his political chicanery and Machiavellian scheming. Smiley and his business interests have secretly been running the country from behind the scenes for years now, and they'd hate for anything to change that. The contentedly countenanced Crumbum comes up with a cunning scheme. He's going to find some gullible dupe of a kid who's easily manipulated and sponsor a senatorial campaign for him. The only problem is, where are they going to find a candidate who is both credible and credulous enough to serve as their cat's paw of a candidate? Hmm. You need a good-looking but gullible young person. Were Scientology celebrity centers around in 1972? Boom! Take that, Uncle Elron! Boss Smiley and his hench people hop in a helicopter and head out to see an advertising whiz named Misery Marco so that he can help them pick out a naive chump, er, senatorial candidate. Misery Marco makes his headquarters in a giant pop-art-encrusted boat in the middle of the most polluted harbor in the country. Apparently, he was behind the lucrative marketing campaign that put stylized yellow and black representations of Boss Smiley's eponymous face on t-shirts and billboards across the world. 
After Smiley and his boys land, Marco guides them through his thought process. If they want to run an unknown underage candidate, they're going to need one with a solid gimmick, and Marco thinks he has the perfect mark. Prez Rickard, the teenager who made the clocks run on time. The next day, Boss Smiley and his entourage roll into the sleepy hamlet of Steadfast in their double-wide, extra-pollution-emitting limousine and start recruiting their candidate. Prez is receptive to their offer and is flattered, but objects that he doesn't really know anything about politics. Upon hearing that, Smiley practically salivates and is like, Don't worry about it. You just leave the thinking to us. If you can't trust the wealthy head of a corporation-friendly political machine who never stops smiling, then who can you trust? Prez accepts this offer and the logic behind it. During the course of their conversation, the topic of Prez's name comes up. Turns out that his mother named him that because she was convinced that one day he would be president. Good call, Ms. Rickard. That's why I'm naming my kid Astro Ninja Shooting Guard. Smiley and his goons head back to Central City. On the way, the emoticon-faced puppet master tosses a lit cigar from his speeding vehicle. It starts a small forest fire, but luckily, a shirtless young racist stereotype of a Native American is there to beat out the flames. Oh good. The bare-chested amateur firefighter confides to his cadre of animal friends, cause yup, he's got those, that he has concerns about this boss smiley fellow. A few weeks later, the senatorial campaign is well underway. At his new mentor's request, Prez takes part in the ceremonial dynamiting of a dam, which begins the construction of a superhighway to Steadfast. The project would destroy the peaceful forest which surrounds the bucolic town, but Smiley neglected to mention that fact to his youthful protege. Once the dynamite goes off, the forest erupts in flames and the dam explodes, sending a tidal wave of water rushing into the valley below. Fortunately, the shirtless young stereotype from a few pages ago was prepared for this eventuality. He loads his animal friends onto a boat that he built for this occasion and plots a course for the site of the construction slash photo op. When they arrive at their destination, the motley menagerie of forest friends start destroying the construction equipment. Hooray! The bear smashes a bulldozer, while the elephant and gorilla destroy a steamroller. Wait. An... Elephant and gorilla were living in the forest? Yup. So were a zebra and some monkeys. You know, your standard Midwest forest animals. Once they finish trashing Smiley's toys, the makeshift monkey wrench gang flees back into the forest, which is luckily no longer on fire or flooding for some reason. Boss Smiley is pretty pissed off, so Prez offers to follow the bestial saboteurs. After stumbling around the forest for a minute, the teenage race car enthusiast turned politician happens upon a hidden cave. Upon entering, he's immediately attacked and subdued by the sure-diverse stereotype who is in charge of the steamroller wrecking zoo crew. The offensive stereotype of an individual informs Prez that his name is Eagle Free. Because of course it is. He also tells Prez that his mentor boss Smiley is a shitty jerk. Prez is skeptical, but Eagle Free tells him that he can prove it. First, though, they need to do a training montage. Over the course of the next few days, Prez makes shitty racist assumptions about Eagle Free, and Eagle Free is like, yup, pretty much. He also teaches Prez all of the fighting, tracking, and stealth skills he spent a lifetime accumulating. When the montage is over, 
President Eagle scale the side of Boss Smiley's skyscraper headquarters and break into the office. Once inside, the pair of new pals quickly uncover a ton of evidence that Smiley is a corrupt asshole. Unfortunately, before they can sneak out with the incriminating files they found, they get ambushed by the crooked political boss's thugs. Once the intrepid intruders are apprehended, Boss Smiley comes out to sass them. Prez is like, You're a dirty crook, Smiley! Boss Smiley is like, Yeah, pretty much, but now that you know that, I'm gonna withdraw my support for you as candidate. You'll never get elected to shit. Bummer. The only problem with this assertion is that I guess Boss Smiley must have grown up in Steadfast, because the icon-faced dipshit apparently has no idea how calendars work. It's a bit late for him to withdraw his support, because it's election day. Prez wins his election in a landslide, after which things start happening pretty fast. I'm assuming that time is compressed because of the comic bookiness of it, because after his 1972 Senate election, we see that Congress lowers the minimum age necessary to run for president from 35 to 18, and Prez is elected president in the same year. Which is confusing. Also, it looks like immediately after the election, they announced a winner that everyone agreed was legitimate. So, that, that can't be right. Comic books, huh? The issue ends with President Prez and new head of the FBI, Eagle Free, sitting in the Oval Office and reading about themselves in a newly printed history book. And there you have the story of how Prez Rickard became the first teenage president. Seems a little far-fetched. I mean, can you imagine the American people actually electing a totally unqualified person with no governmental experience just because he branded himself as an outsider? Only in the funny pages. And joining us for the first time in a while, on this show at least, is my good-for-everything wife, Lisa. Lisa, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's a little chilly right now here in Portland, Oregon. It is indeed. I noticed that... You just can't get enough of presidential elections. <laughs> it's all you want to talk about. It's all you want to think about. And you seem a little bit down now that this most recent one is over. So I thought as a special treat for you, <laughs> we would talk about a comic book featuring a presidential election. What a treat. You're so right. I can't get enough of politics. Of ridiculous racism. <laughs> well, you're in for a real treat. <laughs> now, not only does this comic book feature a presidential election, but how does it relate to tighten up the defense and our raison d'etre, as it were, of covering Teen Titans comics and Defenders comics? Well, this comic book is about a teen... <laughs> who is a titan of politics, who appears in a DC comic book. Oh. Why, he's practically an honorary teen titan. So we're talking about Prez, the teenage president, number one, from 1973. Yes, he is the first teen president of the USA. Wow. So, what did you think of this comic? Meh. Um, that was kind of lackluster. Let me do it again. Okay. Meh! <laughs> 
what did you think of this comic? I have very mixed feelings about this comic. Mm -hmm. I love that it exists, and it's a comic book that I really want to love, and there is a lot to love about it, frankly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the illustration is beautiful. It is just weird as shit. Yes. I think sifting through it, there is some decent satire in there. Unfortunately, it is just too goddamn racist to really love. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a its a product of, you know, 1970s comic book culture. And a product of 1970s in general. Mm-hmm. And the product of an, at the time, older creator. This was created by Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti. Do you have any familiarity with either of them? Shoot, I don't know. Well, obviously, Prez is Joe Simon's most famous creation. But I would say that his second most famous character that he created is probably Captain America. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He and Jack Kirby were a team in the 40s and 50s. Really, from the early 40s until about 1955, they worked really consistently together and created a ton of superheroes and a few different genres of comic books, including romance comics, and were both incredibly influential. Joe Simon's a really fascinating guy. From the late 50s, I think, through around 1968, 1970, he really wasn't doing very much in the way of comic books. He would occasionally dip his toe back into comic book waters, but he was mostly a very successful uh, ad executive. Good for him. Yeah. And also was one of the few guys in comic books who didn't get super ripped off by his publishers. Oh. It was pretty widely circulated that he and Will Eisner were the only people in the comic book industry who knew how to read a contract. Jeez. (laughs) And so he also, at the time, was involved in comic book publishing himself and put out a line of superhero comics for Archie Comics that he was co-creator of, I think, most of the characters for that, and also just handled all of the packaging and production of it, like would put together creative teams for it. What a brilliant man. That's so cool. Is he... So I do have a question that's vaguely related. Cavalier and Clay is kind of an homage to Kirby and Simon, right? In a way, it's not a direct one-to-one, though. It's not like one represented one, one represented the other. Gotcha. I'm not sure if it's picking it up in the background, but our dog Finley is in the room with us. Yeah, he was so sad outside the room. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's totally understandable. He was was going, oh, let me in the room. I'm so cute. Honestly, if he was doing that, that'd be one thing, but he was doing that and punctuating that with woof, 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 woof. Our nephew today... Heard Finley barking at something, obviously, because he barks at everything. Probably children playing basketball. <laughs> Who knows? But he went woof, 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 and it was maybe the cutest thing today. It was very cute. Yeah, so Joe Simon was was hugely influential in comic books and just a, a pretty brilliant creator and a wonderful artist, too. The breakdown of who did what in the Simon Kirby team was they both kind of did everything. That's incredible. Joe Simon did a little bit more of the writing, probably, and Jack Kirby did more of the pencils, but they would often work on the same page at the same time and switch off with inks and pencils. That's incredible to me. It it really is. Jack Kirby was the more brilliant artist of the two, I think, and certainly the faster artist of the two. But, uh... Joe Simon's really interesting, and I read a biography of him, and he was an interesting guy, too. People whose brain works that way, I find incredible. 
especially somebody who can do art and write at the same time. What? Mm-hmm. Brilliance. I mean, I understand why you like comic books, because it's a cool, cool medium. It is. The other creator, the one who did the art for this issue, is Jerry Grandinetti, who is, I think he did a wonderful job with this comic. I am less familiar with his work in general, but you might be familiar with some of it because some of it is stuff that Roy Lichtenstein ripped off. Oh, totally. And made panels <laughs> of and sold for millions of dollars. And He was such a dickbag. Yeah, fuck Roy Lichtenstein, <laughs> man. I know you like his sculptures. I think they're cool. I mean, like, you know, there's that adage that good, great artists steal. And it's true, but bullshit. Yeah, Roy Lichtenstein ripped off Jerry Grandinetti panels, and they were the basis for two of his works called Jet Pilot and As I Opened Fire. Grandinetti, though, did a ton of work and worked in a lot of different genres. Pretty much every genre except for super stuff for a long time. And then he did eventually in like the late 60s and 70s transition and start doing some superhero titles as well. But he did a lot of war comics. He did a lot of romance comics. He did a lot of horror comics for the Warren Company in the 70s too. And was just a very prolific artist and a very good artist too. And in this, you see him flexing an almost like Mad Magazine style cartoonish work at times, but going back and forth between that and a more realistic style in the same book. And it works really well, I think. Yeah, and it's very stylized. Like, so much of it is... And stylized, I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but um, there's a lot of movement in a -hmm. lot of the panels, and Prez is just a really pretty boy. (laughs) Yeah. The cover is by Jerry Grandinetti, but Joe Simon, I think, drew Prez's face. Mm. And it's an awesome cover, too. It is just so weird and there is so much going on in it yeah and i mean at this point in history too there is so much tension in various ways i think my idea of this point in history reminds me of my idea of this point of right now in history if that made any sense yeah but there's a lot of cultural strife and gener- intergenerational conflict and you know protests and weird feelings towards the government and all sorts of interesting stuff This book was very heavily influenced uh, by a movie called Wild in the Streets, Mm. uh, which came out in 1968 and was based on the premise that if the voting age gets lowered to 18, then the 18-year-olds will vote for an even lower voting age. It was also about the first teenage president. And then the young people locked everyone over the age of 30 in concentration camps. It was a really weird movie. It was, I think, Richard Pryor's first film role. Hmm. He played somebody in the Guy Who Gets Elected President's band. He was, I believe, the trumpet player and anthropologist. That makes complete sense to me. Makes as much sense (laughs) as most other things in that movie. But they had a similar premise, and there are actually a few different DC comics that kind of ran with that ball. There was a Teen Titans comic that I covered a while ago that had kind of a similar premise. Did you watch that movie? I still haven't. No, I feel like I should. I feel like you have. (laughs) I haven't, though. You're so good at naming everything about a movie (laughs) that you haven't seen. There's this great thing called the internet. Mm. I'll tell you all about it someday. I am over 30, so I might not know. (laughs) But what's interesting to me about that is this idea that this 
new young generation that's going to put a stop to all the corruption and will have all of these wild progressive ideas if they ever get power is people who were teenagers in 1968 and 1970. So that's the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And that was, in fact, the premise of that movie was they did the math and were like, oh, more than 52% of the population right now is under the age of 25. They could have the vote soon. And there's this both fear and optimism in it of the idea that, like, wow, once young people get to vote, everything's going to change. And I still kind of feel that right now. But it would be nice if more people did vote and were more energized about it, you know? I completely understand that. I talked to so my mom is 70. She's born in 45, so she is 75. Mm-hmm. And we were talking, you know, before the, this past election happened. And she's like, oh, I just have, I have hope for the young people. Young people are doing great stuff. And, you know, this woman was of this generation. Like, yeah. she was, you know, she wasn't necessarily politically engaged. She was more engaged in, like, the spiritual side of the hippie era. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there is this constant... It's the same thing happens with, you know, minorities. Like, we're constantly trying to push responsibility on somebody whose responsibility it shouldn't be at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of that's kind of the way that our... That's one of the, the ways our society functions. I do feel hopeful. Like, I do feel that... I mean, the Sunrise Movement, March for Our Lives. Like, those kids are doing some really freaking amazing stuff. And it's really beautiful. There aren't as many of those kids... <laughs> As I would hope. And everybody is, everybody's stuck in their own problems. Yeah. Like, you know, there's always going to be, I need to make money to, like, I want a car. Or, like, my boyfriend broke, or girlfriend broke up with me, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's hard to be everything at once. Yeah. It's hard to be human, man. And I would know, because I am, as we've established many times, a human man from Earth. I think I can... Boop. Yep. <laughs> So one of the more striking things about this comic book, to me at least, was the character Boss Smiley. Oh, yeah. What did you think of Boss Smiley? I thought he was Mayor Daly. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. So in the comic, we are introduced to this kind of political, the head of a political machine in something called Central, what is it, Central City? I think it's just like Central District or something like that. A lot That's of Central terms, City, USA. Is it? Okay. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is kept pretty vague. And yeah. it's worth pointing out, too, this story doesn't take place in the DC universe proper. Mm. It's its own little offshoot. Although there was later on a crossover not too long after this came out where Prez and Supergirl hung out. Of course they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes complete sense. But yeah, no, Boss Smiley, so he is this incredible figure. He's short in stature, but broad. Mm-hmm. And he's the head of, like, a huge political machine in Central City. So I think, like, I'm from Chicago, and I immediately thought of the Daly family. <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. Honestly, in a modern context, he reminds me a lot of Rahm Emanuel. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> Chicago! <laughs> yep. He's a thoroughly reprehensible character, and I think his name is based kind of on Boss Tweed, too, mm-hmm, in the Tammany mm-hmm. Hall thing. But he has a smiley face for a face, and I think is just this perfect creation of just, like, evil political 
boss machinations. Well, it's interesting that you brought up that Joe Simon was an ad man, too. Mm-hmm. Because in throughout the comic, we see Boss Miley's face represented on t-shirts and billboards and basically everywhere. And thinking about the proliferation of a brand mm-hmm. and the brand of this grotesque faced and, and and at the time wasn't the smiley face like a really big symbol it was it had actually just very recently been mm. branded the smiley face mm-hmm. the general logo had been around since i think the mid 50s early 60s it it was the now traditional looking yellow and black symbol but it wasn't until i think 72 that the phrase smiley face it started getting called that and that actually got copyrighted by a, a french guy Real quick question. Yeah. Do you think that what happened as we got into the modern era is somebody actually found Boss Smiley and made him make a bunch of faces and then photograph him and that's what became emojis? It's quite possible. <laughs> but I think he's this great character and he is also just like so... I don't know. I started to say he's so over-the-top cartoonishly evil, but we've seen so many representations of that being like, or regular person who exists evil. (laughs) I guess there's more of an overlap in that Venn diagram than I used to think that there was. Yeah, he's very self-dealing. He's very unapologetically holier-than-thou. He is... He doesn't think the rules apply to him. I mean, like, honestly... I feel like I would have like appro- like had more fun with this comic probably about five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I know what you mean. Yeah. It's I think at the time he was definitely taking shots at Nixon yep. and what was happening because Watergate was in the news at the time. Nixon wouldn't resign until seventy four, but this was this came out in seventy three and Watergate was a scandal that was being in the news and I think he would. the impeachment proceedings would start pretty soon after this. I'm a little hazy on my timeline there. But you do see, did you notice the pictures in Boss Smiley's office? I was going to say something about it. Yeah, you see a picture of Boss Smiley with Nixon. And? I didn't see the other one. Oh, the other one is somebody that I think this comic is trying to equate with Nixon, which is pretty interesting. In the back there. Oh, Hitler. <laughs> yep. Wow. Autographed picture. And especially considering it's Simon. That's kind of a big deal. Why Why is that? I thought that he was Jewish. Oh, that's true. Yeah, so especially like with that background, kind of a big deal. Although that may also be Jerry Grandinetti. I don't know to what extent... Oh, that was written in, yeah. What was written and what was illustrated. It is one of... He's got his three cronies who I think are supposed to look reminiscent of the three stooges it's not like a direct one for one Mm. but there's definitely a mo haircut there but given that it is in a analog for chicago's political scene i could not help but see that as a blagojevich and there's another one where it looks even more like was he around during this time i don't know i don't know i mean like i was i wasn't alive i don't think he was a big part of the political scene at that point but in that one specifically Look at that Blagojevich. Well, I mean, Blagojevich in general looks like he's wearing a hat made of shadow. <laughs> mm. Didn't he, like, dye his hair at some point and it looked horrific? I'm sorry, I need to write down a hat made of shadow <laughs> because that is definitely my new album title. 
But it would be very funny if we could put a shadow on your head and, like, skulk around. Mm -hmm. But it also would be very useless because you'd be able to see your face and stuff. I've made us some really delicious drinks. They are warm drinks because it's a chilly night. It is indeed. There is whiskey in it and mm -hmm. cinnamon and candied orange and a little bit of cardamom in an homage to the Good Witch. Mm -hmm. Our good friend whose name we don't remember. Cassie Nightingale. Good call. <laughs> That's the only one from the show. <laughs> no, we've been over this. Her love interest is named Sam, which I can remember because he looks kind of like Sam the Eagle. And that's it. There's child one, child two. Blonde friend. Old man. There's old man? <laughs> yeah, old man is her, like, father-in-law. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about old man. <laughs> there's her, there's her, her cousin, who's actually the best actress on the show. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's her daughter, who is... Of a certain age, as came up in one issue when she was celebrating a special birthday. I think it's because they couldn't decide if they wanted her to go to college soon or not. Yeah, I agree. But, but it's... I liked how vague they kept it. They keep everything so vague. It's like a, a lukewarm bath. It's not very nice, but it's comforting. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that you were familiar with Boss Smiley from a different comic. So, before you and I met and you claimed a passing interest in comics <laughs> um before you and i met and i was in when i was in college there was a comic book reading room and my sister was really into transmetropolitan and so i read all of those and that and sandman were like the first comics i actually read through well and sandman also featured prez in an issue oh really yeah <laughs> um it was neil gaiman was big on resurrecting like these kind of forgotten 70s comics so there's the homage to the bronze age sandman in Sandman, which was a comic that Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, because they were both at DC at the time, got together. They did the first issue of it together, and huh. then the rest of it, I think, was just Kirby doing the art. They got a different writer for it. That's so interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Neil Gaiman also had, there was an issue, I think it was like 54 or something like that. I don't remember exactly what one it was, but it was kind of a reimagining of a dream version of Prez Rickard. I admit, like, vague, vague, vague memories, but I might be making it up. I was very high at the time. That's fair. <laughs> Age-appropriate behavior. Yeah, because I was 18, and I was a scamp. Yep. Yeah. A very high scamp. <laughs> very high scamp. But I do remember Boss Smiley from Transmetropolitan, and he was fucking terrifying in that. Mm -hmm. It was just, like, and, like, that book was kind of high anxiety anyway. It was. It was one I read the first, like, two issues of it, mm -hmm. and I think when it first came out, I don't remember exactly when it first came out, I think I was in my early 20s or something mm -hmm. like that, and I had read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson mm -hmm. just then, and I was like, yeah, I get it. If I wanted to read Hunter S. Thompson, I'd just read Hunter S. Thompson, and I think I missed out on some good stuff because of that, because I like Derek Robertson's art a lot, and... Warren Ellis is really hit or miss with me, and also it turns out he's kind of a shitty dude. So I don't feel so bad about missing out on it, but I do think it's interesting that there's, like, a comic book that you've read that I haven't. That is pretty interesting. I mean, it was just, it was mostly because my sister really liked it. Mm -hmm. I think if I read it now, I probably wouldn't have affection for it. And looking back on the process of reading it, I'm like, oh, that was hard, but it was engaging. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was, there was just so much going on in every single, it was like very, very condensed. 
But I think there are actually some analogies between that and this book, because that's kind of the pacing of this book, Yeah, too. it's really jam-packed with action mm -hmm. and things that happen in each panel. Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that happened that I wanted to bring up at the very beginning, mm -hmm. do all teens from like the 50s through the 80s have race cars? I think they all had race cars, yes. Yeah, I think, well, because we read all that Hardy Boys when we were on vacation. And I mean, by all that Hardy Boys, you mean that one third of a Hardy Boys book that we read aloud to each other while we were driving, which was very fun. But but there is, I mean, I, I do feel like there is a Hardy Boys that they like race helicopters and they race like a race race car and stuff. I think part of that is Joe Simon as a middle-aged man kind of trying to tap into youth culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that like race cars were a big thing. Everybody wanted to have one for a bed. Um, <laughs> but, like, there were a lot of race car movies that came out in the late 60s, oh. uh, I think early 70s, too. So I think that that was maybe part of that. But I thought that part was interesting, too. I also was... There's so much in the comic that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, from the fact that it is the 1972 election for Senate, and then when he runs for president, it's the 1972 presidential election. Yeah, he's still... He's and he's still a teen. <laughs> It, maybe it was a special election that was held when they decided they needed a new senator, that, like, an old senator had died and there was a special runoff or something. I think that my general rule for comics for this, from the 70s is don't try to make it make sense. Yeah, I get Real that. world logic does not apply. Well, and the example of that that I was thinking of was I kept wanting to yell at the comic, that's not how stopwatches work. <laughs> Because you get that all the clocks in the town of Steadfast mm -hmm. are wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when his race car thing is being timed, one person's like, that was 5 minutes 37 seconds. And the next person's like, I got 6 minutes and 22 seconds. Mm -hmm. Because they had set their watches by different clocks. That's not how stopwatches work. Okay, so that's not how stopwatches work. But actually, I am going to contest you a little bit on this. Oh? In older timepieces, mm -hmm. if you wound your mechanism tighter, mm -hmm. it would actually be fast. No, I can understand that, but you wouldn't wind it to match a church clock or something. Right, but one because everyone's so higgledy-piggledy, what they could be doing is they could all be winding their whatever. They don't even know what how to wind their clocks anymore. So it's just like a it's like an it's, a pan, it's an endemic to the society. You know, oh. is that the right word to use it? It's a it's a pandemic of, of tight clock winding. <laughs> oh, good. I was hoping we could also work pandemic into this. <laughs> you brought the fucking election issue, babe. Tough but fair. But the the people do specifically say that they set their stopwatch two different clocks in town so I, what last I'm, bit I'm la, okay i i understand the last bit about the, the the watches in the town of steadfast like the second page right above like the splash the two guys who have the different times say i set my watch by the church steeple and the other one says i set mine by the town hall clock and then that panel just kind of repeats i'm very confused by that mechanism can you help me understand it is definitely open to interpretation. It is a very artsy panel. Yeah, that panel just kind of falls into the background and is layered on top of each other. Uh, as I think what it is conveying is that moment is passing into the distance because the, the splash page below it 
is of Prez's inauguration that happens far into the future. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a and time passes in a very artistic way. Oh, it was just confusing to me. Honestly, I thought, I was like, are they on repeat? <laughs> it kind of does give that impression. That would be actually a different interpretation of it, too, is that, like, and conversations like this just keep happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually really liked that. I agree it is somewhat ambiguous, but I thought it was a really interesting choice. Yeah, this is, like, the first comic we've read in a while that I'm like, oh, I don't know how this works. Me either. <laughs> I also loved, just while we are on that page, the splash page gives a little bit about, like, the background of, here's the comic that you're going to read. Mm -hmm. It's about the teenage president, Prez. And then it is the image of him winning the election, and that is overlaid onto images that are etchings from American history. And it's just a really nice mixed media piece that I think works really well. So because we're talking about etchings from American history, can we talk about your middle school uh, history textbook? Sure. These images look insanely similar. We had a history textbook that was like a lot of black and white etchings and mm -hmm. not very much else and like text. And there was like some red. Did this remind you of your U.S. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's supposed to. Yeah. I think even more in the 70s, that would be what a U.S. like history textbook would look like. And I think that's why they chose those. Is like, this is another moment in history. Mm. A history that hasn't happened yet. But it will. And that is actually what the... But a teenager who becomes the president of the United States. It is not a true story. Not yet. What would it be like to actually have a teenager as president of the U.S.? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, the bar's been set pretty low. What do you think of a teenage president? I just, I, I don't think our political system exists in a way that actually would allow for, allows for change easily. Like, I think that our political system as it is right now is really sticky. Mm, gonna get a lot stickier if you got a teenager in there. <laughs> I don't see one person affecting great change. But that's just that's just me coming off I the think past that's, four years. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think a fair amount of change happened in the past four years. Yeah, but he had the he had the Senate. Well, I mean, I think Prez has the Senate too. Oh yeah, he does. We see people are voting the straight cool party ticket. It's the flower party, baby. It gets referenced as both things. Okay, it's the cool flower party. What do you want? I will say I do love the idea of a campaign slogan that is, Cool it, man. You had your chance. I think that actually was the campaign slogan for Joe Biden. <laughs> it was not that dissimilar, yeah. <laughs> One of the interesting things that comes up in this book in future issues is we don't really get to see in this one how Prez does as a president. And in the following three issues... Honestly, it doesn't seem like he's doing a great job. Well, he's got like an impeachment proceeding. At least that's what what's hinted at at the end of this book. There's a lot going on. Well, there a few things are hinted. One of the things is, who is his vice president? I don't know who is his vice president. Can you tell me? Who do you think it is? Um, is it one of Boss Smiley's goons? No, that would be a wild choice. I'm, I I don't know. It's like a shadow. Is it a lady? Yeah, um, it is a lady. Oh, I don't know. His mom? Yeah. Oh. Isn't that nice? It's very cute, but also, like, kind of fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nepotism in politics, not always a great thing. Yeah. Um, it's like Bush Cheney. 
It's like, I'm going to be the president, but you're going to do all the work, eh, Ma? Kinda. <laughs> Make all the choices for me. Mm -hmm. And he makes his sister, I think, Secretary of State. Uh, I mean, it's not really doing a lot uh, for the ticket, I wouldn't think. Doesn't really set up a necessarily that diverse a base, a mm -hmm. voting base. I don't think we're supposed to get the impression that Prez is necessarily part of a big tent uh -huh. political party. Uh -huh. It's just mostly his family or the people who are eligible voters. Yes. And the people of uh, Stratford, Bon Avon, or wherever he's from. <laughs> yeah, steadfast. <laughs> steadfast, sorry. I said big tent, or should I have said <sighs> big teepee? Because we have one of the most unfortunate stereotypical depictions of a Native American in this book in Eagle Free. Yep. And he actually has, like, a whole jungle with him for no fucking reason? Yeah. So he talks to his animal friends. It, it is a... It's Over-the-top, like, <laughs> classical depiction of, quote, the noble savage, unquote. To the point where I think it might be parody, and it is at least leaning into the territory of satire or parody. And one of the biggest indications we have of that is that his group of animal friends that he hangs out with is like a deer and a bear and a raccoon and an elk and a gorilla and an elephant. Mm -hmm. And they do drills together. It is, it is just so disturbing. The dialogue in particular. Oh, you mean the thing where he meets Eagle Free and Eagle Free is like, so you're thinking some racist bullshit, aren't you? And Prez is like, are you psychic? Yeah. It's like, no, I've just had my fucking eyes open for a minute. No, it's the sad thing is he's like, I know what you're thinking, that I'm little more than an animal myself, which is like so fucked up. And then Prez says, that's uncanny. It's true. How did you know what I was thinking? And like, because <laughs> I've been alive in this country. But the thing is, yes, that's true. But it's like Eagle Free, which is a horrible fucking name, is like justifying himself. He's yeah. like, I have studied the animals, and it's just—it's so fucking disgusting. Yeah, it, it is. It is very much both a dehumanizing and a mythologizing of. And also coupled with no understanding of outside of stereotypes, uh, Native American culture. Yeah. It's just disturbing. The other thing that really bothered me about the depiction of Eagle Free is, like, A, he spent all this time. So let's let's give into the conceit, conceit that it's not a horribly racist caricature. Or no, let's not. No, because it, it is. Okay, let's give into the conceit that this man has spent his life kind of learning from the animals. Sure. And, like, developing all these skills. Fucking Prez learns this in a few days. Well, he had a training montage. And also he's white. <laughs> and he, yeah. I, I mean, yes, it is. That is another aspect. There is definitely the white savior thing rolled into that. Yeah, and it's, that was, that was probably, like, I mean, the whole thing is fucked up. So that was also fucked up. And then this, the, the idea, so Eagle Free is introduced because Prez is demolishing a pristine area of land for Boss Smiley to build a superhighway to Steadfast Town. Mm-hmm, because Prez is a fucking dupe. Yeah, he is. In the beginning, but later yeah. he's wise because the noble, noble savage educated him. But that's the whole problem, is, like, this character exists to educate and, like, has no inherent meaning himself, which is yeah. really fucking horrible. Yeah, I mean... 
as he is created as a character, Ego Free should be the hero of this story, not the sidekick. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the character of Misery Marco? Oh, it was great. I liked him a lot. Yeah, so Misery Marco was an ad exec who was Boss Smiley's cousin, because everyone's a cousin. Right? Uh-huh. And he... Well, and he's Smiley, Misery, you know. Oh, they're related. I think so. That would make sense. I didn't catch that. <laughs> Seems obvious, but I didn't. But he's an ad exec, and he is too big to, like, work in a skyscraper or, like, out of a storefront. Where does Misery work out of? Uh, he works out of, like, a oil tanker that is docked in a harbor that is filled with pollution. Because <laughs> he can't work unless he's miserable. Because he's a true genius. <sighs> See, that's one of the things. There's a lot that I really like about this comic book, and I think that is taking a pot shot at this idea of... This is what people think of genius. This is also what people think of advertisers. And that's what I said about there are aspects of it that, like, it goes so far into the realm of satire or parody with some of the -the over-the-top depictions of characters. And I think that is what they are attempting with Eagle Free, because that kind of character is such a trope in this type of fiction. But it has definitely not aged well and was also racist at the time. I think it could generously be considered to fall into the same category as the shitty ironic racism of the early 2000s and 90s, -hmm. you know? I forgot about that, too. I was in middle school. So, did you get the impression that this book was more celebrating or mocking youth culture, or both? I think it has to be both. Yeah. I think if you're reading of it as satire, like, if we bring it through the whole, the entirety of the comic, then it has to be both for youth culture as well. And I think that would be in keeping with Joe Simon at the time. He was the parent of teenagers Mm. at the time as he was writing this. So I think there is that, like, both in awe of their youth and optimism, but also being like, you fucking kids are idiots. (laughs) And I think that comes through in this. And it does, he did a couple of years before, he did a title for DC, which is a comic book that I just, unabashedly love which he, i think that one he both drew and wrote i might be wrong about that but it was brother power the geek and that only lasted two issues but it was this weird blend of homage to hippie culture and ridiculing it and parodying it and i think you see that come up in this too oddly that book brother power the geek it was canceled very abruptly i think in part because It was just really weird, and I don't think it sold very well. But also, at the time, the editor-in-chief of DC was a guy named Mort Weisinger, who was super conservative Mm. and hated hippie culture. So it wasn't mocking enough. But if you read those two issues, it really is mocking youth (laughs) culture. There's one scene in which they are protesting nuclear war by hitting nuclear warheads with hammers, which isn't that far from some of the stuff you see in here. Could you give me some examples of how you feel like youth culture is being lampooned? Well, I think in just, in general, the naivete of Prez in mm-hmm. this issue. And I might be thinking more of later issues of this than this one specifically, because he really does not do a very good job as president. But, but... Because I didn't see that much youth culture, mostly because it was so, so filled with action. Like, it was really, really quick. I think you see it a little bit in... The pro- I mean, the protest scene that Boss Smiley there's, cracks down on. Yeah. There's the protest scene that, yes, Boss Smiley's cracking down on. Towards the end, when you see all of the youths getting elected to things, 
There's a bunch of long hairs. I think the idea of youths being involved in politics is depicted in a way that it is, this concept is inherently ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially because John Denver is arresting somebody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I came on his pillow. Um, (laughs) I don't think that's an actual John Denver lyric. I think I'm just thinking of the Monty Python (laughs) sketch. But I mean, you also see that like the whole, the youths rising, rising to power is the result of Boss Smiley's machinations because they will be easily duped and stuff. You're right. I guess you don't see it as much in this issue. In later issues of Prez, it becomes more apparent that Prez really doesn't know what he's doing. But there are, like in this issue, some really weird, uncanny, like, parallels to current times. Mm -hmm. One of the main foes that he fights is, they're not called it, but they're basically the Tea Party. Oh, wow. They're a group of conservatives that are opposed to his stance on gun control that dress like it's revolutionary times because i think the leader is george washington's great 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 grandson or something like that but there there is some interesting stuff and also he uh he fights dracula oh does dracula drink spaghetti sauce <laughs> no he he famously does not drink a spaghetti sauce uh, uh, uh. That is an impression that that came about because my accent work is terrible, as you may have noticed in the past, and I was trying to do a Dracula voice, and it sounded like an Italian accent. It sounded like a Mario wanting to have some spaghetti sauce. Ah, ah, ah. Yep. But there was one other thing I wanted to say before we started making fun of Dracula. What did you say? Mm, tea party. Tea party. Oh, yes. Prescient, mocking youth culture. It was the tea party. Oh, sorry. It was going to be very funny. Okay. <laughs> Just as long as our listeners know that Fair I was enough. about to be very funny. Good job. I thought it was really interesting. Just back to Misery Marco for a second. The slide presentation that he does about how every great politician needs a slogan. Uh-huh. And that's why they're trying to find the gimmick for Prez. And so the three examples that he gives of previous politicians who have had great gimmicks were Mussolini, Gandhi, and Abraham Lincoln. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't draw a moral distinction between the three. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very telling and plays into some of the, like, that's ad, ad executives for you. It actually reminded me a lot of the Don DeLillo book, White Noise, Mm. in which the um, the protagonist the of the book is not the barn, that that too. Not the world's most photographed barn that has a big line because it's the world's most photographed barn. But the protagonist of the book is the professor of Hitler studies at his university because it is a very prestigious position because there is not any moral distinction drawn between any historical figures. It's just how important they were how much they affected things for good or ill so he does a really big favor for this lower ranking than him professor who is a professor of elvis studies by drawing some parallels between elvis and hitler for him but misery marco's spiel kind of reminded me of that and also yeah the idea that like boss miley chose this kid because hey here's a gimmick yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of the movie Rocky, too. Oh, I've never seen that, you know. 
You've never seen Rocky? Yes. It's very good. Okay. It is a legitimately good movie. And uh, I am feeling very kindly disposed towards Philadelphia right now. (laughs) So maybe we should give it a watch. Maybe we could watch Rocky. I don't know if I would enjoy it. I don't like sports movies in general. Really? Yeah, truly. I love sports movies. I know you love sports movies. You could watch it. I could play Pokemon. Okay. (laughs) Compromise. It's a deal. (laughs) Is the the key to a happy marriage. Mm -hmm. The other key to a happy marriage. You ready to get into the minutia? I think so. I think I've talked about the racism. Why is this car called the lollipop? Who fucking knows? Oh, I did have one more thing. Did you ever see a show, like a, what's an informational program? Documentary? Kind of, but it's more like, it's more like Planet Earth style. That's a documentary. But it's like, so there was one from the UK. It was a British guy, and I think it was from the UK, and it was about the industrialization of time. And it was fucking fascinating. I saw it in college. I was like on a date and we saw this documentary at somebody's house. It wasn't in theaters. And I've been, for the life of me, I've been looking for this fucking documentary. Okay, British documentary about the industrialization of time. Yes. I am not familiar with it. It sounds very interesting. It was, well, I mean, it's the idea that like we're all doing things at the same time is like a huge moment in history. And it was, it went into this in great depth. It was so fascinating. And it was part of a series. And I, I've tried to kind of internet it, but I couldn't quite figure out. Oh, was it called Zeitgeist? (laughs) What? Okay, let's go to the minutia. Fine. (laughs) Rick, would you sing us in? Thanks, Rick. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So we've got some slightly different minutia categories for this one, because this is not despite the fact that he is a Titanic teen. Mm-hmm. Technically, technically, a Teen Titans comic. I did try to look it up because it wouldn't have surprised me if at some point they did have him in the Teen Titans, but I think he maybe had a cameo in one of the Teen Titans cartoons, but not as a team member. Yeah, mostly just like hanging out, sipping a cherry cola. Yep. Sucking on a chili dog outside the Tasty Freeze. You know Prez. <laughs> Do you think like part of the presidential activities when Prez is president is to like, oh, let's go to the Tasty Freeze, guys. Let's drive around all night. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I do my best thinking about nuclear <laughs> nuclear proliferation when I'm in the car with my buds. Mm-hmm. That's what it would be like having a teenage president, okay? <laughs> Fair enough. So, I think we both know that the best part of being president is having an executive presidential chef that mm. will make you food any time of day or night, whatever you want, whenever you want it. So, what was this issue's presidential chef what is the best part of this issue for you um my presidential chef is gonna be boss smiley he was such a good villain he like political machine political hack so merciless so creepy it was just like this perfect encapsulation of all political evils at once Mm -hmm. and the coloring of his head that it was you know peach colored like really made you think of a smiley face that was made of skin which is just creepy it's as fuck ch- it's chilling is it how is. i would say that chilling i agree he was a fantastic villain yeah good call what was your favorite part what was your presidential chef 
honestly, just the existence of the book. Mm-hmm. Like, it came out at such a weird time, not just in the country, but also in comic books. And I think kind of specifically at DC. In the early 70s, you had DC putting out a lot of weird non-superhero comics. Marvel puts them out too, but I think DC did it a little bit more. And I think part of that is because the people that were running Marvel at the time, like the editor-in-chief in the early 70s, fairly early 70s, I think, was when Roy Thomas took over. And he was a fan of superhero comics. I think at every other stage in comic book history up to that point, it had been viewed as a cycle. It wasn't yet that comic books meant superhero comic books. They had started off being the dominant form of comic books for the first like seven or eight years that there were comics. And then sales died off. And so there were romance comics and war comics became really popular and Western comics. And then like mid 50s, I think, was when the second, the Silver Age, the early Silver Age, at least of DC started, and they brought back their superhero comic books and they were popular again for a while. But at Marvel, it wasn't until like 63 or so that superhero comics got really popular. And that was when you got like the Marvel age of comic books. Mm. And so early 70s, sales started to slow down again. I think the thinking at DC was more. Well, that's it for superhero comics for a while. What's next? Mm. Whereas Marvel did some of that, but more doubled down and was like, no, comics are superhero comics, so we're going to do more of those. And I think this is probably DC's bid to make political comic books a thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what this was a bid for. This was. This is what I love about having people in charge of the company who are older and know that they're out of touch with things, <laughs> which is, I don't fucking know what kids want. <laughs> Fuck it. Just throwing spaghetti at the wall. A duck? Sure, a duck. Yeah. From outer space. It's interesting and weird and exciting. There's a Frank Zappa quote where he talked about how the worst thing that ever happened to the music industry was people who were interested in rock and roll got executive positions. Because when it was just like an old dude who had no idea what the fuck these stupid kids wanted, they'd let anything happen. They'd be like, oh, Mothers of Invention? Sure, sign them to a contract. I don't fucking know. But when you got a guy who grew up listening to rock and roll and was like, no, this is what rock and roll should sound like, Mm -hmm. then you get stuck in patterns. And I think that, to an extent, happened with comic books. There definitely is a downside to having old, out-of-touch people running the show as the world in general (laughs) I am gesturing wildly to can attest to. Mm -hmm. But there is that upside to it in terms of creativity and in terms of taking a risk on things because it all seems like garbage to you. Mm -hmm. And I think this comic book is the product of that, and I like that about it. Conversely, what was your hanging chad? What did you like least about this comic book? Oh, jeez. I really didn't like the racism. Ditto! (laughs) Yup! That, I mean, there's really no room for debate in that. The depiction of Eagle Free is really problematic and racist. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And it was also my least favorite thing about this comic book. That is objectively the worst part of it. But there's also a fucking elephant in the Midwest, and it really bothers me because if there was a fucking male elephant hanging out in the forest in the Midwest, I would want to be friends with that elephant. And why is there only one elephant? They love each other. They want to be together as a family. They don't want to just hang out with some dude and a gorilla. Fuck. I like that the elephant and gorilla are friends. Honestly, the fact that there is an elephant and gorilla as part of his little zoo crew, I think is fucking rad. And also speaks to, like, what happened? I know, it was so upsetting. Was was there a zoo fire? Like, I don't fucking know. I think it's just the idea that the trope of the noble savage is just animalistic and that encompasses the most far-reaching elements. I'm surprised there wasn't a fucking tiger. Yeah, yeah, there is reference to there being a cheetah. Yes, because he runs as fast as a cheetah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also learns to, I think, play shoots and ladders with spiders? There's some kind of a spider-themed board game going on, too. What board game do you think spiders would be the best at? Trivial Pursuit. Correct. <laughs> What was your favorite panel? My favorite panel is going to be Boss Smiley's office. I just really, really loved it. I thought it was such a beautiful... I mean, you pointed out the the signed photographs with Adolf Hitler and Richard Nixon. He has a copy of Batgirl. He has his stooges hanging out. And it's also the first appearance that you get of Boss Smiley. And he is so fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. It is just impressive. And there's also a book called The Making of the President, 1960. So pretty, pretty beautiful. And a map that says Central City, USA, Battle Zone. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. Anarchist region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the first you see him, but you do see the foreshadowing of it before that. And one of my favorite panels is on page five. Just the really, really sad kid wearing a smiley face shirt mm-hmm. is really something. That panel is is so good. I think. Probably my favorite is one of the election panels. We talked about it a little bit. The one with all of the middle school history book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. etchings. Page at the beginning. Yeah. With <clears throat> the prez being elected in the foreground. It is a really beautiful panel. And the fact that, like, in terms of printing technology, it's kind of surprising to see etchings combined with comic style. I just think it's a really unique visual for this medium that i haven't seen before you know it is you get a lot more kind of experimental covers in this era i think this is around when they were doing some combination like photo collage comic and drawing covers on comics i know i have a superman one that does that there's i think a couple of uh namor the submariner ones too where it's a comic like a photographic background and then the foreground is a drawn character and it's always really striking to me so yeah i like that a lot the panel when he is arrested or when he the panel when he is elected is really great and there are a ton of picket signs in this yes there are yeah there's a get smiley out picket sign that's pretty great throw the bums out Dig, 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 I think is probably my favorite. I read that as dig, pig, dig. It's a P. Oh, shit. You're totally right. Dig, pig, dig. (laughs) Huh. 
I'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to be saying, but fair enough. I do like the sign in uh, Eagle Free's house that just says nature. <laughs> I think that's probably the best one. I'm going to go with on the cover. I think somebody has a sign that just says baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. I do like that. It's called the cool ticket. Yeah. Vote the cool ticket. Yeah, I would vote straight cool ticket. Uh-huh. Whereas you're more a flower and love party. I do like the flower and love party. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was just nice to see some picket signs. I know you miss them so much. I do. When they're not around. Mm-hmm. Impeach the punk kid. What a punk. Radicals! <laughs> Where did punk come from? Um. Not the sound, but like the, the name. The name, yeah. Well, it got popularized in its current meaning by Punk Magazine. Uh, I actually, I did used to know that and I don't remember. But I believe it is covered in the excellent oral history of punk rock, Please Kill Me. I love that you don't remember something for once in your damn life. <laughs> I aim to please. (laughs) So, sartorially speaking, what was some of your favorite fashion in this issue? There was some damn good fashion. To start off with, on the cover, you have a man who looks kind of like he's dressed like a knight. The chauffeur. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that's supposed to be fur, but it does look like he is maybe wearing a scale armor vest. Yeah, some chainmail. I like Prez's mom. She's dressed very smartly in what I assume is a knee-length full circle skirt and a dark blue blouse. It's very nice. She's got a Mm. cute little haircut. But my absolute favorite fashion accent isn't a full outfit. Oh? After Eagle Free, who, by the way, is the only person who punches somebody (laughs) in Mm -hmm. this book. After Eagle Free and Prez break into Boss Smiley's office... We see... Worth pointing out that they break in as Eagle Free smashes the window with his tomahawk. Oh, yeah. What else are you going to smash a window with? You see somebody pushing a button with Boss Smiley cufflinks. And I just thought that was so clever and Mm. such a good use of branding. Agreed. I mean, if we're talking fashion in this issue, for me, the standout piece is Prez's outfit. Because it always says Prez on it. (laughs) Because. It is a red turtleneck that has the presidential seal on it. Before he has any presidential aspirations, despite the fact that he was named Prez because his mom was like, this baby looks like it's going to be a president. Mm -hmm. But it's a snazzy fucking look. Mm -hmm. And speaking of punks, it reminds me so much of the classic Ramones logo. And I wonder if it was, in fact, the inspiration for that. Because that is also the presidential seal, but it has the first names, or the adopted first names of the Ramones around it. This is the presidential seal, but it has Prez's name on it. And USA on the bottom. But it is a very, very iconic, very dapper look for young Prez. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about people who wear their names on their clothing. Have you ever worn your name on your clothing? I did have a headband that said Hub on it. How about you? Um, somebody bought me some hairpins that say Lisa that I occasionally sport. Mm. But not, not like because I was like, oh, I want to wear my name. I've never like gotten one of those airbrush shirts that was really popular when I was a kid. Or Do you need one? Nope. You nope. sure? 
Um, no, yeah, I'm, I'm positive. Do you need me to have a shirt that says my name on it? I kind of want an airbrushed, (laughs) like, I would want you to wear a shirt that was airbrushed with a beautiful picture of you on it. (laughs) No? horrible. All right. You and I share an aversion to, to images of ourselves, I think. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't want a picture of myself, but I don't know. I don't think I would probably, I mean, I'm not a chipmunk, (laughs) so I don't need, like, a big shirt with a big h on it but if somebody can pull off that look i mean good for them man yep i mean one thing i will say so there's one moment in the book where boss smiley when he's first meeting prez is like don't you want to be senator and prez is like who wouldn't want to be senator of the united states and i was like any sane fucking human in the (laughs) history of the world and also somebody who wears their name on their shirt does want to be president of the United States, or does want to be a senator in the U.S. I don't know. I think a guy named Prez with a presidential seal on his shirt might not want to be a senator of the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> that line did kind of crack me up. I feel like in order to be a politician, you have to have a weird combination of traits. Mm. Truly interesting combination of traits. Let's put it that way. What were your favorite words in this issue? Um, So my favorite words come when Boss Miley and his friends are scheming about finding a teenage candidate. And they say, hmm, very interesting. Teenager makes clocks run on time. And then his stooge says, I can see it now. Vote for Prez Rickard. He'll give you the right time. And that sounds like a failed sexual innuendo. Huh. He'll give you the right time. So, in that scenario, like, that would be, like, fuck time? He'll give you a good time. Oh, okay. I thought, yeah, I was thinking there's this movie where Greg Kinnear plays the guy who starred in Hogan's Heroes, Bob Crane, who... uh, Less of a deep cut than that. Was into some weird sex stuff and was murdered, and Willem Dafoe plays a character in it who has a special watch that he keeps pointing at and saying, what time is it? It's fuck time. So I'm going to say the more commonly used phrase. Which is? I'll show you a good time. Oh, I guess that's a little more common. You were so weird. I, love I didn't write that movie. I know, but you brought it up. You're the one who started talking about time. I know, it's mine. Is that not going to come up? I think it was a clock that had like a picture of Mickey Mouse with a boner. It's a weird movie. Nonfiction, too. What's your favorite words? (laughs) It's fucked up. I think it is the presentation that Misery Marco gives, where he's like, uh, It's not easy. Our candidate has to have a gimmick. Look back at history. Mussolini made the railroads run on time. Gandhi stopped the trains. Lincoln freed the slaves. These punk kids never did nothing, boss. It is such a weird presentation and also the idea that that is how those people rose to political prominence as opposed to that was what they did once they had political power or I don't know. It was just a weird presentation, and I really did like the depiction of an ad man who, that is what they do. They take the gloss of all of these things and 
divorce it from any context or meaning. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was well done. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Corey will be back next week, and we will get back to the Teen Titans story. But thank you so much for uh, for taking time out of your schedule and joining us, Lisa. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking about this comic book with you and thinking about it. Yes, it was very fun. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you all for bearing with me, um, even though you were going to have some fun times <laughs> not thinking about the presidential election. Well, think about press. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. Vote flower and peace ticket, or I mean, if we can achieve unity in our household despite the fact that I vote the cool ticket and you vote flowers and flower and love, flower and love, I think there's hope for unity in our nation, except with you know, fascist fuckheads. <laughs> Don't have unity with them. If you'd like to get into touch with us, we can be reached. At Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached on the internet at our electronic mail address. That is www. Wait, that's not for email. No, even, that's is not it? for email. I, um, I'm sorry, let, let one of the over 30s answer this. at gmail.com. Yeah, thanks. So you can find us there. We're also all up in various other forms of the social media. So if you search for us, you can probably find us. Just type into your Bing search engine, tighten up the defense. That's T-I-T-A-N. And once you get past all of the things that are about a certain Tennessee football team, well, there will be. And, you know, scroll around to see what we have to say. Lately, not a heck of a lot, but, uh, you know, we're on there sometimes in various places. Oh, and, uh, thanks so much. I got a lot of really nice feedback about the Haunted Disco Barn episode that we did for Halloween. I really appreciate that. It was a lot of work, uh, but I'm pretty happy with how it came out, and hearing that you guys enjoyed it was really nice. So. Thanks for letting me know. I appreciate that. And as I said, yeah, we can be found all over the internets and such, but if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look, and that's inside your hearts. We'll be there. We'll always be there. Pointing at our watches. Tapping them. No, no, no. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> what, what time? <laughs> Not in their hearts. And you can donate to us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. Uh, we are trying to get back on schedule with the What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the hopefully back to monthly podcast that I do with Lisa here. Mm-hmm. Where we talk about Howard the Duck comics. And we go, wah, a lot of the time. That is true. So if you enjoyed hearing from Lisa, that's another place you can do it. That inf- that podcast is available exclusively for our donors. So yeah, there's that. There's some other bonus material up there. If you donate, you get access to it. But more importantly, at least from my perspective, it's a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we do and would like us to continue doing it. 
That's all I got. That's a lot. Thanks. Yeah, we will talk to you later. Thanks for your time, guys. You take good care. Yeah. Be safe. Do crimes. <laughs> We're totally over 30s. <laughs> what? I just said take care. And I told them to do crimes because I'm cool. <laughs> okay, I'm flowers of love. Sure. <laughs> and they knew it. Is that all the categories? I think although you added picket signs at the last minute. Sorry. It's not sorry. Could have said something. I wanted to surprise you with airplanes. <laughs> it's the key to a happy marriage. As every morning I wake up, it's it's fuck time in airports. <laughs> <laughs>